sutra from the chapter number 2, the sutra number 6. In the previous lecture, we have stopped with the commentary of the sutra number 5, just to make clear the concept so it should not be painfully abrupt to those of you who never even heard of Yoga Sutra before. In the chapter number 2, which is called Sadhana Pada, the chapter on Sadhana, Sadhana means the spiritual practice, so in this one, Patanjali intends to explain a lot of things about the structure of the practice of yoga, many, many things like the things which you hear in the first month, that yoga is made of eight steps. As you are going to see, those are presented by Patanjali in the chapter number two of his Yoga Sutra. In this chapter number two, Patanjali presents the matter in approximately 50 sutras, 50 one-liners, 50 short aphorisms, which of course uh, require laborious comments, because they are just like mnemonics, they are like, they are like just memorizing tools, these Sutras, and coming back to our story, uh, Patanjali starts from a very general level, and Patanjali starts speaking in the first part of chapter 2 about the so-called kleshas. The kleshas are the impurities of the mind, the ones which produce the pain and the bondage, the state of non-enlightenment, the state of lack of freedom. And Patanjali describes actually five basic impurities of the mind, which is exactly the way the Tibetan yoga does, and these five impurities from a tantric standpoint are actually related with the five elements, and therefore with the first five chakras. There is an impurity at the level of the mind specific to each one of these elements. And in our previous lecture, we had started with the first of them, which was, which was considered to be the mother of all the kleshas, the root impurity of all the other impurities, the most important of all of them, as Buddha also considers, which is, of course, ignorance. Avidya, the lack of vidya or ignorance. That being the pollution of Vishuddha chakra, if the throat chakra, the ether, the fifth element, is in disarray, one suffers from ignorance, if you want in a more limited way, from stupidity, as the Tibetans put it, which means a kind of obscurity of spirit, which prevents us from reaching actual knowledge. And the sutra number six continues with the second. Those five impurities have been listed, but it's no use for me to go over that listing, because we are going to take them one by one anyhow, and from the analysis of them, they will result those uh, which they are. So, um, Patanjali is starting now in the Sutra number 6, is describing briefly what is the second klesha, the second form of impurity of the spirit. Logically, as this uh, comes through the tantric analysis, actually Patanjali speaks about the next impurity, hierarchically, which means the one at the level of the air element and the one at the level of anahata, therefore. And this one is called in Sanskrit Asmita, and it is roughly translated as a kind of sense of I-ness, a kind of false sense of me, 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 and nobody else. And he defines it in the following way, Sutra 6. Asmita is the erroneous identity between Purusha, the witness, and buddhi, the intellect or the instrument of the spirit. Basically, this is a very, very important statement. It says that at the level of anahata, we are having this fundamental split between those who are harmonious and those who are disharmonious, if we perceive ourselves as spirit, and if we, or if we perceive ourselves as mind. Those of you who make connections will realize immediately that the fourth chakra, Anahata chakra, 
corresponds automatically to the fourth body and to the fourth level of existence in this universe, which is the mental body, the Vijnana Maya Kosha, the upper mental body. And then automatically, at the level, at the fourth level of the being, the human being is, or considers itself, to be mind, intellect. Exactly as at the lowest level, the human being would consider itself to be just a body, and that's the illusion of Mulakara. Automatically, at the level of the fourth body, the human being is subjected to a much more discreet, much more pernicious illusion, much more difficult to remove, which is, yes, I am not my body, I am not my life force, I am not my emotions, but I am my body. What am I? I am this guy or girl who thinks inside my brain. I am this person that keeps on thinking. Exactly that's the... It's a confusion which even great philosophers in the West have made. That's the pernicious illusion of Descartes in the Cartesian thought. His, one of his aphorisms is cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. For him, the fact that I am is because I think. Therefore, Descartes identifies himself with a mind. He says, I am my thinking principle. As most of you already know, the great mystics of the world, including the great seers of yoga, they never accepted such statement. They said that this is a complete fallacy because I am not the mind. Nobody is the mind. The mind is subtle indeed, and the mind can observe the emotions and the body, and that's why the mind is very much like a background of my being. And it is very easy for me to take refuge in my mind and to say I am the mind. But a very fine analysis shows that I am not the mind, because in special conditions I can analyze my own mind, I can observe the mind, and the mind cannot observe itself by a very elementary logical rule. And therefore there must be something beyond the mind. Therefore to think that I am the mind is actually an illusion. This illusion in Tantric Yoga is reflected by the fact that at the level of Anahata, besides the fact that we have some intellectual nature, that the human being who has some arousing of the fourth level tends to be more refined, more mental, more intellectual, more philosophical, why not? At the same time, at the level of Anahata, as you know in the higher courses of yoga, we have a secondary chakra of it called Hrit Chakra, which is actually the location through which the yogis have identified the famous Jivatman, or the individual self. The self, which is a universal concept with beyond space and time, is related to each and every one of you like the reflection of the sun in a bowl of water. And exactly as the sun, the same sun, can be reflected in a hundred water bowls and present a hundred reflections, exactly in the same way the divine reality is reflected like in the heart of each and every human being and gives that presence, gives that feeling of I am. Exactly as Ramana Maharishi has pointed it in the 20th century, this is an essential feeling for every human being. If somebody is asking you something concerning yourself, your first reaction is to say, who, me? And when you say, who, me? You always point here. Because nobody, when they say, who, me? says, who, me? Or, who, me? No. Everybody points here instinctively. Why do we instinctively point here? Because Ramana Maharishi says, in yoga there is a information which proves that the, there is a manifestation of this individual personality that the, we call generically in the West, soul, the soul, my soul, my individual soul, related with the area of the heart. If you remember the Christian mystics, Paul, the, in uh, essence, they had resumed, they have boiled down the human being to a triple structure. The human being is made of body, soul and spirit. The body represents the vital structures, 
The soul represents the Jivatman and the spirit represents the transcendent, the spiritual nature, the divine nature, which could be called Atma or at the macrocosmic level, Param Atma, the higher spiritual reality. And therefore, in yoga we know that indeed at the level of Anahata Chakra we have this duality between something which is partly intellectual, refined, philosophical, and something which is the pure soul, this deep emotion of the immortality, of the eternity, of the indestructible. Those of you who are in yoga courses, learn about that when you get to learn about our practice of yoga asana and the yogic opinions about the individual soul. And therefore, here we have uh, the conclusion of this. When Anahata Chakra is disharmonious or imbalanced or perturbed, the human being mixes up the soul with the mind. That is essentially what is being said. If your Anahata Chakra is right, then you see through the heart. Then you are fulfilling the idea of Jesus. Jesus is uh, talking to his disciple Judas who is handicapped at the level of the heart and he is telling to him don't try to understand with your mind because Judas says I don't understand anymore you are acting in strange ways I would like to understand and Jesus is telling to him don't try to understand open your mind I'm sorry open your heart and eyes he says you have to see what I am doing with your heart and with your eyes in the meaning of a direct perception. Things are what they are. This is the Satori of the Zen masters. He said you have to open your heart and eyes. Only thus you can understand me. If you try to think of Jesus intellectually, you are going to get lost somewhere. That is why so many authors who try to make philosophy about Jesus they get puzzled. This humanity keeps talking since 2000 years about Jesus, not to mention that humanity keeps talking since thousands of years about divine realities of bhakti, and only those who open the heart understand truly. The others try to understand it with the intellect, and they simply cannot. They get stuck somewhere because of asmita. Asmita is the kind of disturbance of perception by which somebody mixes mind, intelligence with the actual soul with a deeper level and that is why here we have the clear expression in tantric ways of where this is coming from it's from a disturbance of anahata when anahata chakra is properly activated then we do not have this klesha, this impurity of asmita, of identifying ourselves with the wrong aspect. This aspect is of course specific to, um, is specific to bhakti yoga, to the yoga of the heart, and because else I'm saying again, the mind is taken for soul, the mind is taken for spirit. This is a tragedy which happens experimentally in the 20th and 21st century to the people who, for example, perform just mental arts, such as is happening often in NLP. It's a typical pattern in neuro-linguistic programming. Most of these big NLP, big shots and so on, they become hypnotizers, stage hypnotizers, showmen, make and write books, do a lot of things about self-transformation, but ultimately it leads nowhere. NLP is for some of them who don't hit the heart, very disastrous because the NLP people, they have learned that the brain is a machinery, that mind is an aggregate, that if you understand the laws of mind, you understand that people are visual and auditive and kinesthetic, that when people access images from their memory, they move their eyes up to the left side, that when they do this, they do that, that it is possible thus to anesthetize yourself through a sort of help hypnosis by zooming in and zooming out on some mental 
images and really they deal with the brain as if it is this computer from minority report or something. You can do things in your brain and actually it works. The amazing thing is that it works. But the sad thing is that most of these people are very Manipura chakra type of people. Sometimes a mixture of Manipura with Ajna chakra. They become rather cynical type of people. Very much into money, power, manipulation and these kind of things. And many of them suffer tremendously after a point. Because it's like they do a lot of things but have no soul. The founders of NLP, Bandler and Grinder, they both of them reached into the mental hospital, one of them, Bandler, repeatedly. That simply means they went crazy. Because if you start screwing your mind off and putting it on the table, my mind works with this and with this, and there is this factor which does, and here is my mind. Then who am I? If this is my mind and I was my mind, it's exactly like my life is nothing. I am just an emptiness, but an emptiness not in the Buddhist metaphysic meaning, which means Dharmakaya, which means a spiritual reality, the Buddha nature. Emptiness in the meaning of nothingness. I'm nobody, I'm just an illusion of somebody who has this mind which works by this rule and this rule and this rule and is made of this block and of this block and of this aggregate. And in the end, I'm not getting anything. That is why looking beyond the mind without a soul is a very sad thing. That's why great philosophers who went really far with their minds like Kant and Hegel and Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and especially guys like Kierkegaard and Sartre and others, they have almost gone mad. Their philosophy is becoming very sad. It becomes a suicidal, depressive, dark philosophy. Because the more you split the hair, the more you find that beyond it there is a great disappointment. There is a great nothingness. While Jesus, and not only Jesus, because maybe Jesus is one example that we use one too often, because he is so special and so peculiar. But Rumi and Ramakrishna and other of the huge mystics, they never found out that it is disappointing and depressive and defeatist and sad. And It's not because it is not. But that is when you man manage to replace the mind with the soul. When you manage to harmonize your Anahata Chakra and to find this Jivatma, to find this Supreme Self, to find this inner self, this individual self in your heart and thus to reach to the essence of life to the essence of joy, to the essence of immortality, to the essence of consciousness. And for this reason, yes, this accomplishment uh, is an accomplishment strictly of the heart. Can there be spirituality without this? As often I have said in, to all the pupils, yes, there can be a spirituality which avoids this which bypasses this one, but that spirituality is usually dry and sad. Here and there, various yogis from Tibet, from India, they practiced ways which were not related to Bhakti Yoga. They did not harmonize the heart, which is yet so very important. And then their spirituality was a spirituality which was, in a certain way, bitter, dry, severe, based on willpower, based on self-discipline, no doubt that there was something great there, and yet at the same time, at the lower levels, these people were feeling somehow betrayed. You are going to see that even Patanjali, although he knows these things, because he himself often comes from this level, and he doesn't bother so much with this level of the heart, automatically sometimes he goes into this dryness of classical yoga, Vedantic type of yoga, and because of this some of the things which he says are a bit bitter. Like there is a sutra a bit later where he says from the standpoint of the wise, everything is pain, everything is suffering.
That is a statement which any tantric practitioner in this world would vehemently deny because from the standpoint of the dancing Shiva, nothing is pain. The universe is a blissful aggregate of consciousness. It is a dance between Shiva and Shakti and everything is a blissful reality. It's not that everything is pain. Far from that. But in classical Buddhism or in Vedanta, they would use that view to motivate you to escape from this world. And therefore, to make a long story short, uh, this Asmita has been explained now as a disharmony at the level of Anahata Chakra, which makes that we use the mind instead of using the heart in a metaphoric way, which means instead of identifying the soul. This deserves more commentaries, but they would be going outside of the frame of the Yoga Sutra, so I will refrain because we could speak about this problem of getting not seeing things through the heart. We could write a whole book, we could speak weeks about this, because it is one of the biggest topics in spiritual development. And the next analysis is referring to the sutras number 7 and 8 taken together because they reflect two very closely related levels. Again, I'm saying the sutra number 6 was referring to this opening of the heart and I would like to mention it once more. This is not only through Bhakti Yoga. For example, Ramana Maharishi, the great Indian enlightened master, he practiced a form of Jnana Yoga and through that Jnana Yoga he somehow made a recognition of the self but he practiced the Jnana Yoga which mysteriously was still focused on the heart because the method of Ramana Maharishi was you should meditate on the area of the heart where you put your finger when you say who, me and you should meditate there and go deeper and deeper and all the time meditate on this who am I and that's a mixture of jnana but with a focusing on the heart as well. Now, the sutras number 7 and 8 refer to the next two kleshas but the next two kleshas are somehow opposite because they refer to Manipura Chakra and to Svadhisthana Chakra. And Manipura Chakra and Svadhisthana Chakra are fire and water. And those two elements are traditionally like dogs and cats. They are like opposites of each other, the fire and the water. And because of this, the properties or even the kleshas of those, they somehow reflect completely different points in life. The Svadhisthana person and the Manipura person are somehow very different from each other. The Svadhisthana person is a jellyfish and the Manipura person is a pushy manipulator. And exactly opposites, like they are going for two totally different issues. Just first let's go through the sutras and then see what is to be commented about those. The next two kleshas, the one for Manipura is called Raga, which is generally translated as desire. And the one for Svadhisthana is called Dvesha, which is usually translated by repulsion or rejection. Attraction and rejection. Desire and reject of things. Exactly opposites. And I have described them in the previous lecture when I spoke about the, briefly about the qualities of them. Raga being fiery, rajasic, and it's like I want and Vesha being like cold, and it's like rejection, I don't want, and it is related with this negative being. First, the sutras. The sutra number seven says, Raga is the attachment accompanying pleasure. It is a simple law of the mind, which says whenever you feel pleasure, you want more of it. And therefore, by a simple mental mechanism, your mind says, yes, 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 more of this, yes. And therefore, you want more, and wanting more, you end by becoming attached to it. While the sutra number 8 redefines by saying, Dvesha is the repulsion accompanying pain. Every time when you have a painful experience, you say, no more of this. And eventually you develop a chronical rejection of that experience. Ultimately, this is just the conservation instinct, isn't it? Because it is like the law of life that the things which are good you should want more and the things which are painful or destructive you should don't want them. You shouldn't want them. 
However, the human perception is biased. We live in the matrix and we take things at the face value. And therefore, we say things which are pleasurable are desirable and vice versa. But actually, in the meaning that things which are non-pleasurable are non-desirable and to be rejected. While that is, wait a second, we can easily find examples where that is not true. I can eat a delicious food which makes me ill, sick, at the least, and I can eat a foul medical, herbal medication, which smells and tastes horribly, and it's unpleasant to take, and which actually makes me healthy, so it is good. So therefore, this is a very superficial judgment, that what is pleasurable I should have more, because sometimes it can be a pleasurable vice, or a pleasurable poison, which is actually destroying me, and sometimes I can have a painful medication or something good, which is actually helping me, and that pain is nothing, then it's just a temporary nuisance. But the human mind is built on such simple pillars, that actually the mind mechanically has this thumb rule. If it's pleasurable, get attached to it and want more, and if it is unpleasant, reject it and run away from it. This, these two, again, they represent Svadhisthana and Manipura, and the general level of consciousness of most human beings on this planet is Svadhisthana Manipura. Humanity dabbles into Svadhisthana Manipura most of the time. Humans oscillate between water and fire. The old mystics, there is a form of mysticism which has inspired some Western philosophers and some Western mystics. They even resumed the whole universe. They boiled down the whole universe to the polarity of those two. For them it was the famous philosophy of fire and ice. The whole universe is nothing else but a dialogue between fire and ice, which would be also like yin and yang, solar and lunar, but still fire and ice. And the universe is always in the, in between the extremes of getting frozen by ice and thus becoming dead. That is the inertia, that is the non-spirit, that is the tamas, that is the entropy, and the fire which stirs up this ice frozen thing and brings life. Fire, of course, having its own destructive um, extremes. And it's exactly like the cosmic space which is frozen to 273 degrees centigrade below zero to the cosmic frost and it is exactly like the sun and the stars which are at the level of incandescence of millions of degrees hot as a difference between fire and ice. Fire and ice, they can also, they represent a holographic projection, a simile, an analogy of this basic polarity between Svadhisthana and Manipura, between Raga, I'm sorry, respectively, Dvesha and Raga, repulsion, ice, and attraction, desire, fire, the two opposites. <clears throat> Therefore, Patanjali, even in the commentaries which are following his text, he actually, those two are treated together. It's like in the case of humanity, this fire and ice type of duality is all the time there, and because of this, those two very often come together. Actually, some commentators say that these two, Raga and Vesha, are like the two sides of a coin. You cannot desire something if you don't reject something else. Because you say, if I want this, it means obviously that I don't want that, because I cannot want everything. And therefore, uh, Raga and Vesha are like the two sides of a coin. And that is why the attitude which they had about them, it is actually that if you remove one, you can remove the other. Because you cannot be a person who has a lot of desire, but no rejection. You cannot person who has no rejection, no repel of any, no repulsion, but at the same time who is full of desires. And therefore, these two, psychologically speaking, they go together, this being the dominant level of consciousness of mankind. When we define that we say out there life is a telenovela, life is a soap opera, 
this soap opera, either it's Hollywood or Bollywood or whatever it is, bourgeois daily life, is just Vadistana and Manipura. The whole society oscillates between this fire and ice, between this fire and water levels of existence. This being said, Patanjali is going to give us more practical things, but now he is just defining them, and we can see them from the standpoint of chakras and energies. And finally, the last of them, which corresponds logically then to Muladhara chakra, to the earth element, was called in the listing which he made earlier in the conference, in the discourse which I held before, uh, he calls it Abhinivesha, and this Abhinivesha is translated usually as the fear of death, the fear of extermination. And this is the last of the kleshas, the last impurity. So we had ignorance, bad identification, asmita, believing that I am the mind, that I am something else than what I actually am, raga and vesha being poisoned by desire and repulsion, and finally, Abhinivesha, the fear of death, which makes us all so mortal and so weak. This Abhinivesha, the Sutra number 9, defines it in the following way. Abhinivesha is the desire for life, sustained by its own force, which exists even in the wise and the learned. Therefore, Abhinivesha is like a self-existent force, and here again we are having a great duality, which I will need to explain. Remember that this fear of death is from Muladhara. I said that Swami Shivananda making an analysis of this, he demonstrates that people with a strong Muladhara, they have a greater of death. That this can be used as a great spiritual motivation, because it will make you do yoga and meditation as crazy to save your soul and to get over this fear of death. That this fear of death is prompting sometimes forms of destructiveness and blindness at the level of Muladhara. Swami Shivananda claims that, for example, murder is one of the results of this fear of death. That the murderer kills just to demonstrate that he is stronger than death. He means his own death, but he kills somebody else, actually. So in this way... There are uh, a lot of things which have been said and analyzed, and now we are going into simply the definition of this one. Abhinivesha is this desire of life which emanates from itself. It's like life has it automatically. Look at a worm. A worm doesn't have a consciousness, but if you try to squash it, the worm will run away, hide, defend itself, because the worm loves its life. The worm is not egoistic. The worm, because it's too low to be egoistic, the worm doesn't have a mind to think that he loves the life or that he is afraid of death or anything. Even in that primitive consciousness which exists in a worm, nevertheless life loves itself. In life wants to perpetuate itself. That's why he says, Abhinivesha is the desire for life sustained by its own force. It's like an inner momentum of life to perpetuate it. You have seen, perhaps, this fantastic movie, The March of the Penguins, and there are others, the migratory birds, Le Peuple Migrateur, and others, which show documentaries, which show to the yogic mind the amazing effort which life, life as a principle, makes to perpetuate itself. It's incredible what an ingenuity, what an ingenuity, what an effort, what a sacrifice life does to just keep on going. Even those poor penguins in the most terrible climate on this earth, what an effort and what a sacrifice and what an amazing thing just to perpetuate life, just to keep life going. And it's like life is going through itself. It's like there is an inner momentum in it which says on, 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 go on, go on, go on. And therefore, Abhinivesha is exactly like this force, and Patanjali mentions, not coincidentally, which exists even in the wise. I would like to remind to you that all the human beings who have experienced death, even the wise and the learned, 
have been confronted with this fear in the, bio, in the autobiography of a yogi, Lahiri Mahasaya, when he is told by his guru, when he is sent word that he is going to die in three weeks or so, he enters in samadhi and he basically panics completely for a short while, and he can resolve that only by going in samadhi, because, and he is asked, how comes that a great guru like you is afraid to die? And he says, well, a bird, if you keep it in a cage, it gets used to that cage. It's simply the way the mind is. And my soul has stayed in this body for decades and decades. My soul is afraid. If you open the door to the cage, the bird is afraid to fly out because it lived all its life in that cage and it's afraid of the outside. The outside is something alien. So he says, it's naturally, my soul has got accustomed to this prison and it is afraid to step out of it and to live without it. And that is why if Lahiri Mahasaya was uh, like this, let's not forget that even Jesus, it's true, Jesus had to go not only through death, he had to go through an agonizing death, through a terrible death, which had an additional dimension to it, because it was a death as a sacrifice, as a supreme karmic sacrifice. But still, if Jesus, who proclaimed himself as the Son of God, and who raised the dead and walked on water, he sweated blood, and he prayed not to go through this thing, and he was afraid, and he asked his own disciples to pray with him, to stay with him a little bit, and he felt this need of comfort, then what to say about the normal person? It is obvious that the normal person, even when learned and wise, will have a certain apprehension, a certain fear in front of this phenomenon of death. That is why, remember that this klesha is somehow a dominant klesha. All the nature has this klesha, which is fear of death. Even animals which have no understanding, they have automatically a fear of death, even when it doesn't manifest strictly as a fear. Even a plant, if you, if you go to cut it with the scissors, the plant reacts electrically amazingly, although the plant does not have organs for feeling pain or anything like this. And that is why it exists, yes, even in the small creatures. And one of the commentators of Patanjali says, this also comes because each and every one of us has passed through thousands of deaths. Death is one of the things which we really understand because we have died hundreds and thousands of times in previous lives and therefore death is one of the experiences which is really universal. Everybody has in their subconscious mind the experience of dying because you must have gone through that experience at least hundreds of times. And therefore, Patanjali says, this is a basic klesha, it is the lowest of them, but since we live at the level of the earth element and at the level of the physical world, this is the most pernicious of them down here. This is the most obvious, this is the one which afflicts us most. Maybe when you'll be in the astral world, it will be raga, the desire, which will drive you crazy. But here, at the level of the lowest of the elements, at the level of the earth element, it is exactly this fear of death, which is this fear of termination. Well, here, there are, of course, different solutions to it, different understandings of it. The Vedantic Yoga uh, sees, and as well as Patanjali, ultimately, sees uh, the solution by destroying the attachment to the body. To be able to destroy this klesha, you have to destroy your attachment to the body. And then you are kind of as good as dead. This solution is a terrible solution for most, most spiritual practitioners. Because most spiritual practitioners don't have this kind of cruelty, toughness, to kind of cut with mercilessly through their desires and attachments and everything and blow off the candle of life, simply get out. Only people who are pushed by life to an extreme desperation, 
Such people practice these kind of extreme spiritualities, kind of suicidal, self-destructive type of spiritualities, in which they would rather prefer to die meditating than to see or experience anything else, and they would be really, really tough against uh, all those things. But else, that is the ascetic, Vedantic, dry solution. In terms of Tantra, the most advanced tantric metaphysics has discovered in this Abhinivesha an amazing thing, and it is worth sharing this, because this is one of the beautiful alchemic solutions which the tantric tradition provides to us. Abhinivesha is at the level of Mulakhara, but at the level of Mulakhara, exactly as at the level of Anahata, we have hidden Jivatman, it's not only intellect, but there is also the soul hidden somewhere in there, and it's a matter of if you see it or not. At the level of Muladhara, we have another essential thing of the human being hidden, and that is Kundalini, that is Shakti. Muladhara is the pole of Shakti, exactly as Sahasrara is the pole of Shiva. And therefore, here the Tantrics have said, wait a second, the vision of Kashmir Shaivism means that if a worm protects its life, it's not because of fear. This Abhinivesha is a too elaborate thing for a worm or for a primitive life. Therefore, this is the love of life for itself. It is the love of the self for itself. Shiva loves himself. Shiva loves Shiva. The spirit recognizes the spirit and therefore it loves itself. And that is why the worm in a certain way does the same thing which Rumi does. Rumi says, I love you, I love myself. I love myself, I love you. The worm loves itself in a primitive way. Why should you take it as fear when it is actually love of the self? And that is why the Tantrics have found another solution, which is not the destructive solution. To eliminate this Abhinivesha, you have actually to refer to Shakti. You have to awaken Kundalini. You have to worship the mother of the universe, the feminine principle, because actually we are not trying to run away from here. The universe is Shakti and Shiva. Therefore, the problem is not that you should destroy the attachment of all these and get out of here. The Vedantins and the Theravada Buddhists, they are trying to run out of samsara because samsara is bad. But for the Tantrics, those of you who haven't heard that idea, it's a common idea which I have said in so many lectures and you hear it in the regular yoga courses in the lecture on metaphysical basis in the second month, for the <clears throat> tantric tradition, this universe is not a place where you want to run from. You are not trying to escape from samsara, because samsara is maya, and maya is the shakti of Shiva. And therefore, this world, our life, the life in general, whatever we have, is actually the shakti. It is actually a part of the divine. And therefore the Tantrics have been on the opinion that here again it's a matter of harmonizing of the chakras. If you harmonize your Mulakhara chakra, automatically you are going to be able to go into Abhinivesha. Abhinivesha, the fear of death, is the result of a disharmonious Mulakhara. A harmonized Mulakhara sees life and death as the dance of Shiva and Shakti, and it loves life, not as an attachment anymore, but it loves life as the love for Shakti, the love of the pure energy. This is a very important, a very important philosophical distinction. And now, the sutras continue. I'll go on a little bit, we have a bit of time left. The sutras continue with Patanjali describing, okay, now he finished describing the five kleshas. We uh, explain them according to the five uh, chakras, to the five elements. And now Patanjali says something, it starts presenting some real metaphysical things about these kleshas. Some of the things which we will comment 
perhaps in the next lecture, you will see that they are the very basis of Indian mysticism, of Indian and yogic metaphysics. Yoga, Yoga Sutra, Patanjali, lay, puts them in a very fundamental way. And that's why some of these things, if you have been in yoga for, world, for more than one month, some of these things, or if you have learned any oriental philosophy, some of these things can be, oh, of course, but this is clear. Well, it's not clear until it is not properly explained metaphysically, and that's exactly what Patanjali does. Patanjali starts with everything from scratch. He doesn't take things for granted. He wants to explain psychologically and ontologically as well how these things are coming to be. And here he makes a because this chapter is about practice, he described the poisons of the human being, and then he says what is to be done about these poisons. And those are the sutras number 10 and 11. I will read them together, and then I will make a few comments. The sutra number 10 says, they, these kleshas, when subtle, are destroyed by the disappearance of the mind. And... The next sutra says, these modifications or kleshas are to be destroyed through meditation. These two have to be understood together. Uh, here, the essence of this, just to make the long story short, the essence is that Patanjali says, these kleshas, and it's unfortunately something which was described in the previous lecture when I commented the... Uh, the sutra number 4, but I will not have time to go there, and therefore those of you who didn't hear that will have to take it for granted, because it has been explained. These kleshas, they have different levels of manifestation. They have a primary level of manifestation when they are like the seed of the tree. The tree is not there, but the seed is there. Then they are at a very subtle level of development, and then finally they are fully developed. This is corresponding in the Tantric Yoga with, this, with the manifestation of these characteristics of the mind, the kleshas, at the different levels of profoundness. For example, the seed level is at the causal level, because the seeds are the causes. But the subtle level is at the astral, emotional level. And the obvious level is when they reach the level of the brain and they become physical things. That's why these kleshas are in a latent condition, or in a subtle condition, or in an obvious, displayed, enhanced condition. And Patanjali now tells us that we have to roll the carpet back. These kleshas, you have to make them more and more subtle. If they are physical, you have to make them subtle, and when they are subtle, you can destroy them or reduce them to their seeds, through meditation. So basically, Patanjali speaks about a resorption of the kleshas. You are going to see how he does it practically later. But now he explains the principle, and this principle is very important, because remember, these kleshas, ignorance, wrong ego, wrong identification, like I don't know who I am, desire, repulsion, fear of death, this is what creates the human hell. Any kind of emotion from depression and hopelessness to jealousy and from anger <coughs> to confusion, they are actually related with those poisons. Those five poisons are the root of all the hell. And therefore, we are all asking ourselves, because many of you want to apply yoga at a deeper level. You apply yoga physically and in three weeks you will start feeling much better physically. And you all know that yoga goes deeper. That is why uh, some of you complain, and it's typical for beginners in yoga, that after you start yoga, after a week or two, your emotions start coming up and you have to fight with a lot of negativity in you because you are actually cleansing, cleansing, cleansing those things. And we always tell to people, clench your teeth a little bit because it will not last forever. This pool of shit which exists in your aura... It's not infinite. It is having an end. Therefore, you are just cleansing and cleansing and cleansing. And it is normal. And the more disturbed your emotional life is, the deeper this pool of uh, 
misery is, but it's not without end, it's not without bottom, it's not a bottomless pit. And therefore, here, Patanjali, first of all, he tells us you have to roll back the carpet. If you are having some of these impurities, which manifests in a gross form, which means it's a habit already, it's part of my daily life, it's kind of I'm all the time doing this, you have to roll them back, to dematerialize them, to take the power from them. It's exactly like you are weeding a field. You have a field which is full of wheat, and then you start using all kinds of instruments to weed them. And the weeds are going to a more and more subtle part, and then they try, they tend to come back, but you all the time go every day and exterminate the weeds until you manage to bring everything to a reasonable level. Remember, it's the very law of life that if you do not harmonize your chakras, if you don't work and if you just let yourself exist in this soap opera, it will perturb your chakras because the world is perturbed to a, to a large extent. If you are swimming through mud, you will get dirty of mud. If you are pulling somebody out of a mud pool, when he hugs or you or she hugs you, your clothes will get muddy. Therefore, it's impossible to interact with the world without getting muddy every day. And exactly as when you go through town, when you come home, you wash your hands because your hands have picked up a lot of dirt from all kinds of places in town. Exactly in the same way, our being, by living in this kind of world, picks up all the time misery. As I told to some of you, a great mystic used to say that while he was talking to people, weeds are growing on his field. And then he had to go back to his room to do some prayer, some practice for himself. Because he had to constantly garden his own field, which is the field of the mind. And everything which comes by the law of the mind, it tends to sprout. It tends to become into something. And therefore, uh, this is a way of turning the tide. This is a way of turning them back from gross to subtle, and from subtle to reduce them to seeds. The first says that this can be destroyed only by the disappearance of the mind. Which means, if you want to burn out the seeds of those weeds, which are the kleshas, you have to go beyond the mind. Going beyond the mind means basically reaching the state of samadhi. Only in the state of samadhi, the kleshas can be finally exterminated. If not, even when you push them back, the second sutra says the, the kleshas, they can be destroyed or they can be made more subtle, pushed back, through meditation. So, meditation is pushing them back, but only the disappearance of the mind can completely eradicate them. So, there are degrees. When you are doing yoga for a while, all these negative things are pushed back and pushed back. But unfortunately, they do not disappear. They are like weeds. You have cleansed them now, and in two months they start coming back. And you say, oh, blasted weed, bloody weeds, they just keep coming. Yes, that's the problem. Because they keep sprouting all the time. And that's the story with the negativity. That's why in yoga, the fact that you did yoga for three, four months and your mind has become more clear and more harmonious, is not a guarantee that in five years is not, your mind is not going to be filthy again. You have to be able to eradicate the roots, the seeds, to burn the seed so that those weeds should not come back. And as long as we live in this world, we are conditioned by attraction, repulsion. It's really impossible. Even great masters of yoga living in this world, they had to live by some elementary rules of this world because else they would have been out of it completely. And because of this, even great teachers, great spiritualists, they accept that a little bit of these weeds should grow, because without these weeds, like there is, the soap opera will be over, simply. There doesn't exist a perfect world in that way. It needs to be somehow weedy in this way. And uh, because of this, remember that therefore, here Patanjali tells us that the method which destroys these kleshas 
is meditation. So meditation indeed is the way to terminate. If you are afflicted by fear of death, by repulsion, by exceeding desire, by asmita or a wrong form of egoism, a perception of non-perception of who you are, and ignorance, the last and perhaps worst of all of them, then the solution is meditation. With meditation you eliminate them. But Patanjali also says, with meditation, you push them back from physical to subtle, and maybe if you go really deep, you manage to push them from subtle to causal. But the seed is still there. And as long as the seed is there, and you haven't gone beyond that, they can come. They can come after 20 lifetimes. For 20 lifetimes you did not cultivate one of those seeds, and then when it finds the proper conditions, it starts sprouting again. It, is, it was just waiting for its day. It was waiting for its time. Therefore, here, um, actually, Patanjali is teaching a method which he will substantiate later when he speaks about how to deal with negative emotions. That this is a very thrilling chapter when it reaches to that part because it uh, illustrates some things which many people in modern life are confronted with. Here, um, actually, Patanjali describes again a method which is dry, Vedantic, ascetic, which is a method of dematerializing things. Take them out of manifestation. From gross, make them subtle. From subtle, push them into causal. And from there, exterminate them completely. The tantric tradition, in its highest forms, again has a different opinion about this. Because the tantric tradition says, all these things which create life in this world, they are actually the game of Shiva and Shakti. They are the play of Shiva and Shakti. And you don't really want to destroy these things because it would mean that you want to destroy life. You want to destroy samsara. You want to destroy the manifestation. Again, for some of you, these ideas are not very clear. If you will understand in the second month of yoga and more, or if you will join a Kashmir Shaivism workshop or others, you will understand these more metaphysical things. Uh, these are meant, again, for pupils who have gone through some of this education and uh, they will understand more profoundly. And the tantric solution then is not to switch off the manifestation and to run into purusha, into pure spirit, into nirvana and abandon maya or samsara. You have to keep this one going. And therefore, how do you keep this one going at the same time? not being afflicted by impurities, which means living a divine life, as Shivananda and Aurobindo said, living in a pure existence, like Aurobindo said, bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth. Heaven on earth. How would you do that? And the tantric tradition of Kashmir has the solution of this in its famous Krama Mudra, which means a Samadhi with the eyes open. It's very difficult to explain, but for them there exists a technology which is mixing up the internal with the external, the subjective with the objective. It's a meditation of trying to externalize the Samadhi and transform it into a Samadhi with the eyes open. So the the tantric tradition confronted with this problem of the kleshas, of how to diminish them, has actually reached to a conclusion in which these kleshas, you have to it's exactly like you say, look I'm dealing with this weed this weed actually could be made very nice if we could re-educate it a little bit. Moreover, it is growing in the wrong place. And therefore, what am I doing? I am reducing the klesha back to the seed, and then planting the seed where it's useful. And then it's exactly like somebody complains, oh, in my garden there are some blasted acacia trees, and you cannot get rid of these bloody acacia trees. They grow everywhere. They have thorns. They, you cut them, next spring they grow again. They are like un in unbeatable. You can't put them down. And somebody says, why don't you make a living fence out of them? You need a fence. If they are so stubborn, why don't you put them in a place where you need them anyhow? Because, as I told you so many times, we talk in general terms about the fact that the 
Egoism is a foul beast. But wait a second. The evil egoism is not such a foul beast when it, when it rules over your immune system. I don't know how many of you realize, but your immune system is a manifestation of your egoism. If you wouldn't have egoism, you wouldn't have an immune system, because the immune system tells to all kinds of intruders, this is not for you, peace off, this is my territory. And therefore, please remember that these negative emotions, they can actually be integrated in a positive way. So the tantric tradition says, put, push them back to the seed, and then let them develop forth in the useful way and where they need to be. And that they call this movement where you dematerialize and materialize, resorb them, and then bring them forth again. This is a typical tantric philosophy for dealing with those elements. Therefore, here, when Patanjali speaks only about resorbing them, he is describing a typical Vedantic, dry, ascetic mentality. There is no going around it. The Yoga Sutra of Patanjali belongs to this hardcore, dry type of yoga orientation in India, and of course by extension in Tibet, and that is why he always gives this negativistic type of solution, which is not less spiritual or valuable, but which is a bit difficult to swallow. The Tantric tradition brings amendations to these things and says it can be done in another way. These kleshas, you have to deal with them in a creative way and actually they will never disappear. As long as you will be a dancing Shiva in this universe, the kleshas will be there because they are part of the necessities of life, only that they have to be managed properly. I will not say more. Now we are stopping. We have stopped after the 11th Sutra. To fix the things of tonight, we are going to conclude again with five minutes of meditation at the level of Ajna Chakra to go a little bit deep to develop this.